Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Leviticus class on this rainy Resurrection Day, which is Sunday. I know y'all are just thinking about the day that happens next week, but we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. Today we're going to be in Leviticus chapters 18 to 20. So if you want to turn there and your copy of God's Word, we'll be looking at Leviticus 18 through 20. And you'll want to have that open because we'll be surveying this. We won't be able to read through all of it, but we'll look at the salient points there to help you in understanding it and reading it through another time. Leviticus 18 through 20. As you know, as we've considered this study in Leviticus, we've studied the book in two parts. You know, the first 15 chapters being the way of holiness, which the way of holiness is through blood atonement. It's through God providing a substitute sacrifice for your sins. That's the, the way of holiness and the first well, 16 chapters, which culminates in the Day of Atonement. And then the last half of this book, what we're considering is the walk of holiness. So the person who's been saved by the Lord walks with the Lord is the concept. It's like, well, how do you walk with Him? You know, what, what do you need to unlearn from uh, old ways of life or unlearn from the world's influence and then what is it that you're turning to when you're walking with God and following Him? Well, in this particular section, these three chapters, 18 through 20, what we learn here is that your, your personal life must be holy. You know, your walk with God must be holy in concerns to chapter 18. Your personal life must be holy sexually. We see that in chapter 18. must be holy societally in 19. And then seriously in chapter 20, because as you'll read, the word death and blood guiltiness a lot. So holiness is a serious matter to be holy or to die. In Leviticus 18, if you're looking there, we'll begin with the first few verses there, Leviticus 18. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. You shall not do according to what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do according to what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to do my judgments and to keep my statutes and walk in them. I am Yahweh your God, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, these are holy words from your very mouth, which call us to the privilege of being a people that is holy to you. And though these words are ancient, they are still relevant to the very moment in which we live as you are the timeless and unchanging God. We pray that you would teach us, that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Amen. As we see here, the sons of Israel at this stage in redemptive history, they needed to unlearn Egypt. You know, these things that we're going to read about here was all things, were all things that they did. They learned to do these by being paganized in a paganized society. These weren't uh, random laws that God just decided to throw out of nowhere. These were sinful practices that they had learned from the world and had been practicing, and they needed to unlearn what they had learned in Egypt and they also needed to be protected from the land in which they were going, which was Canaan, because these practices, these sinful religious practices would be in that land also. 
So here in the wilderness, God is parenting the infant nation of Israel to establish them as his witnesses in the world, to disciple them before he would send them out to be a kingdom of priests, to be people who would make God and his ways known to others. In a sense, in parenting them and looking back at Egypt, he was saying, stop throwing yourself on the floor and crying every time you don't get what you want. And then in looking forward to Canaan, he was saying, you know, you can't go over to that kid's house because I know what goes on at his house and what you come home with when you go and hang out with that kid. God's parenting Israel, and out of his love for them, he's seeking to protect them from sinful habits they've incurred from uh, having a, the corrupting influence of the world around them. And in his love, God gives them law. He gave Israel these laws because he loves them for the purpose of protecting them from false worship and its destructive consequences, but also to bring them into true worship, to have true joy and happiness in the Lord. And a primary point in this text, I think, is also to these laws were given to help them to know how to maintain loyalty to their covenant redeemer. Say, so, well, how do, you, how do you show God that you appreciate what he's done for you? How do you live loyally to him? And God tells them exactly how to do that. And why, why is it, you think, that our personal lives must be holy? Why must our personal lives be holy? Because God is holy. You, know, you see this throughout these chapters here, repeated over and over. I am Yahweh, your God. So, well, why, why should we do these things? I am Yahweh. We must be holy because Yahweh is our God. We must be holy because of who our God is. We must be holy because He is holy, and our lives are about enjoying Him and representing Him and making Him known in the world, and we can't do that except we be holy. Now, Israel, as we have discussed, had been corrupted by the world's religions, which involved things like incest, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality. And this world isn't entirely different than growing up in San Francisco in the current day. Imagine, but imagine, you know, in this moment in life, growing up with drag queen story hour, no-fault divorce, state-sanctioned child sacrifice, the government which promotes and praises homosexuality, especially through educational institutions where pornographic materials are given to kids as normal and needed, they would say, and where government jobs often involve pressure to celebrate a co-worker transitioning genders. And you think about that being the norm in life and growing up in that and not knowing anything different, and then you become a Christian. And now you think about sexuality different, gender different. You have to unlearn all of those things. And that's, this was true for you know, the, the Israelites, they just thought all of that stuff was normal because you can remember the whole molten calf incident when they came to, it's like, we want to praise Yahweh for what he did. And so what they did was what they knew to do when they wanted to worship a deity, which was to involve themselves in all these deviant practices. Even in our own day, another thing that we see that from the corruption of the world and how it corrupts the modern church as we see popular religious leaders who they, they promote these sort of lifestyles by saying we shouldn't demonize these people. But what we are indeed talking about is demonic activity. And they urge us to be winsome, which means to be silent about these things and to not point out these things which God calls sins, namely all these 
sexual abominations that we read about here in Leviticus 18. And they say, through doing this, we'll win them to Christ by not making these things an issue. But what we see is those who want to win the culture ultimately have been won by the culture. And these errors display that even popular evangelicals, preachers, book authors, and the such, they've been corrupted by the world's culture rather than being holy to God, who graciously, he confronts sin to forgive sin. That's why he's doing it, because he's a redeemer from those things. He forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression. And we lose the the gospel message when we give in to that to proclaim to people that they can actually be free from those sins. Uh, they, they can enjoy God's creation as He has intended it. Living between Egypt and Canaan, I think as you can see, is not much different than living between the Bay Area and Reno. It's not, and it's not hard to imagine the pressure to compromise on these sort of things when you're continually hearing, you know, all sorts of mantras like, well, love is love, and God is a, a God of love, and He must love like we do, and just accept people and be tolerant and never point out these things where if you point it out to somebody, it might make your life real uncomfortable, and it might cost you something to speak the truth in love. You know, for the sons of Israel, the, pres- the pressure was to keep continuing to worship the way that they learned to worship in Egypt, and also to avoid being ostracized by the nations around them. You know, they wanted to be like them rather than different than them. Because if you're just like them, you're accepted by them. There's no pressure. There's no being set out of society or being persecuted. They recognized that compromise was the easier path. And today we see... You know, the pressure to compromise here is not just something that, you know, happens, you know, with those people out there, but it happens with us, you know, in the classroom where you might be made fun of if you decide to stand up for the truth or at work where you might lose your job if you don't uh, approve, you know, one of these uh, perversions that's listed in Leviticus 18 or Sometimes it's, it's a family member who's bought into the world system, and they call you up and want you to celebrate their uh, coming out in their homosexual lifestyle, or so-and-so is transitioning, and they just want uh, your celebratory support of them moving through with mutilating their bodies. And the pressure is that you know, they'll stop talking to you. They won't see you as family anymore if you won't accept them as they are. To tackle these issues and to have conviction and to know what to do requires a, a robust worldview that's based on truth. You know, God's people need that. We need to know how to see the world the way that God wants us to see it. We need to see what is true and right if we're going to be loyal to Him. We need to know God. We need to understand His created order. And we need to have a conviction about being holy in our personal lives. Leviticus 18 through 20, in this text, Yahweh God continues to graciously instruct Israel in how to walk with Him. And as He teaches them law, He teaches them values, He teaches them worldview particularly a worldview where they can distinguish between what is holy and what is profane, what is clean and ordered the way that things ought to be, and what is unclean and disordered from the way that God would have things to be in His world. Chapter 18 focuses on personally being holy to God sexually, and this topic moves deep into the personal lives of the Israelites concerning human sexuality. In verses 3 and 4, we saw how the people stood between the worldview of Egypt behind them and the worldview of Canaan before them. 
and they needed to unlearn Egypt and to be protected from Canaan. But why? Ultimately, for the glory of God's name, so that His name wouldn't be profaned in the nations. The reason that He was redeeming them was to make the greatness of His name known. But more than that, it was for their good. They would be living the way that God had intended and in His blessing. And additionally, for their witness of God's glory to the nations. People can't see the goodness of God apart from Him having a testimony of it in the lives of His people in the world. Verse 5, as you recall, 18.5 says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which is, if a man does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. There's a helpful note in the MacArthur Study Bible on this verse, which reads, Obedience to God's law always ensures temporal blessing, as this verse indicates. But these words have a higher reference to spiritual life as indicated by the Lord and Paul. Obedience does not save us from sin and hell, but it does mark those who are saved. So you can see here that you know, one of the confusions of Israel was they thought, well, if we do these things, then we'll be atoned for. They, thought it, they were thinking of it backwards, like if we did these laws, it'll bring us to the Day of Atonement. But as Leviticus is laid out, the Day of Atonement happens first. You know, the way to God happens first through atonement before the walk with God. You, know, you don't walk yourself to Him to be saved, but rather the salvation comes first and then the walk. These laws that are here come from God's good nature and they're reflected in His creation and to follow them is to follow how things are supposed to work. And rebelling against them is always to choose to go against how things work, which always brings turmoil and ultimately death and destruction. Now the main topic of chapter 18 you can see in verse 6, it says, None of you shall approach any blood relative to uncover nakedness. I am Yahweh. And you see repeated over and over throughout here this concept of uncovering nakedness. This is a word that we read way earlier on in Scripture back in Genesis when we first read it of Adam and Eve who were naked and unashamed. But then that crafty serpent came and they were naked and ashamed. And so nakedness became a symbol of human shame. And this phrase to uncover nakedness is simply a euphemism for sexual intercourse. So what's being pointed out throughout this whole text is you know, these are all ways to deviate sexually from God's order in creation. And he's teaching Israel that they need to live different in a world that points back to creation, back to how things are supposed to be, even con concerning their sexuality. They were to point back how things are supposed to be ordered in God's world. And nakedness and clothing covering nakedness or theological. Or you see when we're uncovered, that's shameful that we need some covering, which we know that God provides that, just as He provided a sacrifice and covering for Adam and Eve, just as He provides a blood atonement covering that's pictured in the teaching model of the priest and the sacrifices as we've studied. Now, you know, going back to the beginning of creation, that God gave us the only def definition of marriage that there is and ever will be. Genesis 2, 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We see here that God's definition involves one man, one woman as one flesh for one lifetime. Therefore, as you read through this text, just as we read in verse 6, something like incest is wrong because 
That one flesh isn't to be joined with one flesh with another blood relative. The two are to become one flesh. And this concept was to point back to Eden. And upholding marriage would be critical for Israel's witness in the world, which is important with the deviation of adultery. It's like, well, why is adultery forbidden? So, well, because covenant loyalty is demanded, and their covenant with God and how they lived was to be pictured in their marriage. They have to be faithful in the covenant of marriage to show a picture of their faithfulness and their covenant to God and to show that the reason that we're loyal is because our God is loyal in covenant, and marriage is a, a gospel tract of God's commitment to His people and His people's commitment to them. So, that's, you know, a key concept here in chapter 18 is loyalty, covenant loyalty to God. Sacrificing children to Moloch is one of the things you read about here, which was something that was for, forbidden for the Israelites to participate in because they were to see children as a, a gift from the Lord, to be dedicated to the Lord as they would dedicate their firstborn. They weren't to sacrifice their children at Planned Parenthood to stop Mother Earth from her threats of climate change. Homosexuality was also forbidden because it goes against God's creation order. Because again, God's order was one man, one woman, covenanted as one flesh, and that's how they were to lawfully be fruitful and multiply in covenant marriage only. So, what's helpful to see in this is that that's the only definition of marriage. Everything else is not, is not marriage. It cannot be called that by God's own definition. Homosexuality is a war against God's command to be fruitful and multiply. It's anti-family. It's anti-creation. It loves death and hates wisdom. Homosexuality was very common in pagan temples and the fertility rituals that they would have, and they actually referred to their temple prostitutes as holy ones that were set apart for making other people holy through their sexual deviance. In 1822, it says, "...you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination." Now, this is not something that was left to be true only in this culture and this time in history. This is repeated again in Romans 127. It says, "...in the same way also the males abandoned the natural function of the female and burned in their desire toward one another, males with males committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error." And later on, after a whole list of all sorts of sins in Romans 1.32, it says, "...and although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them." That's a verse that you could probably write at the top of every news website that you uh, would ever read. I'd say newspaper, but I don't know if anybody knows what those are anymore. You can't claim that these sort of sins were just for those days, or as some would claim, well, the sin was just that they weren't committed to having only one partner. But again, as people would try to talk about there being a marriage, which they would call homosexual marriage, uh, the Bible doesn't teach us that there's any other kind of marriage. There's no such thing as homosexual marriage, though people use that sort of term. The way that it's labeled in Scripture is with the words perversion and abomination. Also addressed in this text is bestiality, which is forbid forbidden because, again, it goes against God's created order. 
It almost seems like something like this just shouldn't even need to, to be said. It's bizarre, but it was part of how these people lived. They needed to be taught that it was wrong to do that, especially when there was just the influence of that was just what was common in the world during that day. I think it's important here to continue to belabor the, the point that this idea of, of sexuality can, and, and sex is something that can happen only inside of marriage. So you can think about how sometimes we, we talk about sex outside of marriage. Well, Scripture doesn't give us that category and say it doesn't teach that you can have sex outside of marriage. It says you can only have sex in marriage, but you can, and you can only have sexual immorality outside of marriage. You can only have perversion outside of marriage. You can only have an abomination outside of marriage. So when we say to a, you know, a younger person to not have sex outside of marriage, it makes it sound like they could have the same thing outside of marriage, but they shouldn't for some arbitrary reason. But what we want to communicate from what God teaches us to have as a worldview is you can't have the same thing outside of marriage. You can have a perversion outside of marriage, which will bring destruction into your life, but you can't have the same thing. We shouldn't also, we should not buy the lie that, well, these sort of things are okay so long as they just don't hurt anyone. You know, we shouldn't uh, involve ourselves in the personal matters of other people's lives. But what we recognize is people are being hurt. Sin always hurts people. It's always destroying things. You know, it, it's loving to address these things with people. And we also shouldn't be deceived by the misuse of the concepts of love and acceptance in the world either. Love in Scripture never approves of self-destructive sin ever. And just because you don't approve of somebody's sinful lifestyle doesn't mean that you don't accept them as a person that's valuable. We know that people are valuable based on the fact that they're made in the image of God. And so we're going to treat them with respect based on that alone. Their value isn't based on whether or not we approve how they live sexually. We love them regardless and speak the truth to them in love. Now, it's true that sexual sinners, that they do bring mass destruction to society. And a lot of people recognizing that, they start to see these people, be they homosexuals or labeled as transgender, people start to look at them as enemies who are messing up the world that they're living in. And we don't want to be giving to that, that wrong view of these people, but to rather to see that you know, they're, they're enslaved to their sin, which they need to be made free from. We want to see them as the mission field and not enemies who are destroying our nation, which we want to take back to the administration of Ronald Reagan. What these people need to know is the God of the Corinthians, to whom Paul wrote to these people, such were some of you. These people that, that live and homosexuality, they know that it's destructive. They know that it's, it's bringing pain into their lives. They know that they deserve to die for committing such a sin. And how freeing is it to, to know that there's a God who can set them free from that slavery to sin and turmoil so that they could become a people that could truly hear those words and have experienced, such were some of you but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you're taking notes on that. The world doesn't get to define marriage or sex or love or what it means to be accepted. God alone defines these things. It's His world, and we want to be directed in His good ways. 
The corrupting influence of the world is more powerful than perhaps we realize, and we should be humbled by that reality because you think about in 1 Corinthians 10 when Paul talks about, you know, a lot of the different sins and idolatry that the Israelites were given to. He says, take heed lest you fall. He says, you can be corrupted by these same things and fall into the same errors. If you could, you know, at this moment see the swath of Sunday gatherings that are meeting under the name of Jesus Christ this morning, who do, who do you think you would find is influencing who? Would you think that most of those Sunday gatherings are influencing the world around them, or that would you think you would see more so that the world was influencing what was happening inside of those churches? Would you find the church being largely influenced by the world's ways, or would you find them standing in holy contrast, seeking to be salt and light and a witness of God's truth in a dark place? One of these uh, compromises that's happened within Christendom is the concept of women pastors, which again, there are, there's no such thing. You know, the world uses the term and defines things that way, but it's not a scriptural definition or term. There are no women pastors, as we've talked about this in the past. But this is one of the things in which the world has corrupted us and uh, some have compromised. But the Word of God is clear on this as we've discussed, 1 Timothy 2, 12 to 13, where the Holy Spirit reveals to us, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first formed and then Eve. So you see what this concept is tied to is creation. You know, the way that we gather and worship and the way that we understand leadership and male and female is tied to creation, not how a culture might see it, where a culture might say, well, we have women CEOs, so why can't they be pastors as well? And you say, because our God is holy and this is what He told us to do. God's Word for God's church is clear and it's based on creation. It's not based on the world's corrupting culture. And perhaps non-surprisingly, that's why we see a church that deviates on this and installs women pastors soon moves to accepting homosexual leaders and then later men that are dressed like women and convicted pedophiles into their leadership. How, how does this happen? Well, the church moves away from being influenced by God's Word and being influenced by the world. Instead of thinking about the fact that Christ has ransomed them and won them to Himself, they want to win the world, but the way that they seek to win the world is actually being won by the world and of the world. This is why we need a text like Leviticus 18 so that we can be protected from those things, to have a warning to, to know what is a right worldview and to have a conviction of what is right and holy and to walk in it. And apart from the protect, protective grace of God, we could commit similar errors of covenant disloyalty to God. This is why the pursuit of holiness is a non-negotiable priority within the church and among God's people. It's a top priority, a non-negotiable priority. These commands to holiness are not just God's preferences that we're free to adapt according to how we see things or as we see right in our own eyes. If you read verse 29, chapter 18, verse 29, says, for whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. So you see that God punishes these sins and abominations, and the fact that He punishes them shows that these aren't preferences. Uh, these are demands. These are imperatives. These are non-negotiables. 
You're to be holy to God or be cut off. This urges us to have a fear that would want to keep ourselves near to God's Word, always growing in it, hearing it, obedient to it, loyal to His instruction, and to be aware of being corrupted by unholy practices in the world, but also to know that God will judge. He will, he will judge our deviating from these things as much as He will judge those sins which are happening around us. This is from 1 Peter 4, 17 to 19. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. Moving on to chapter 19, we see that our personal lives must be holy societally. If you look at the first four verses of chapter 19 with me, I'd like to read those. Chapter 19, verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Every one of you shall fear his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh your God. Do not turn to idols or make yourselves molten gods. I am Yahweh your God. What do you hear an, an echo of in these verses? Yeah, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, and you hear what the whole book is, of Leviticus is about in that, the, that one phrase, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. This is the point of Leviticus. And Israel's call to holiness is twofold in that in concern to their need for holiness being found in God and the source of their holiness being found in God. The need for holiness is rooted in who God is. He is holy. And their source for holiness can only be found in Him alone. But you see this if you look over at chapter 20 and verse 8. 20 verse 8. It says, You shall keep my statutes and do them. I am Yahweh who makes you holy. So you see Him, He's commanding you to be holy. And you're like, well, how, how do I do that? Like I need that and it's in Him and He's that. So what's the hope of me ever becoming that if I'm not that and He alone is that? He makes you holy. He's the source of your holiness. Now, Leviticus 19, as you know, is the place where Jesus got all that really good sermon material for the Sermon on the Mount. Things like in Matthew 5.48 when He says, You therefore are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As you know, First Peter, holiness is a major theme throughout that book, where he also writes, having learned this from the Lord, First Peter 1.14, as obedient children, not being conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Here we see the, the call to holiness for God's people is timeless. You know, it wasn't just for a time in the wilderness, but for all time, even our own day and this moment and for the rest of our lives. And why is it that God, through Moses, is reminding the sons of Israel of the Ten Commandments? Well, to, to stress loyalty again. You know, He redeemed them to 
belong to him. This is how they were to be loyal to him. This is how they were to enjoy life in him. Uh, This is where they would find true joy and happy holiness. This is how they would know how to walk faithfully with God. Moving on from there in verse 5, we read again of peace offerings being given, which could also be translated a, a fellowship offering, which is the idea that they were to celebrate peace with God by this practice prescribed by God, by Him bringing them into fellowship with Him. Now, you might have a little subtitle written in your Bible going on to verse 9, where it says, various statutes. You might write in there also, not random. These are not random. Uh, There's a flow of thought that moves from food and peace offering to farmers leaving food out in their fields. And so it, it makes the reader think, well, why, why all of a sudden mention leaving something to harvest for the afflicted and the sojourner after instruction about a peace offering? Well, it was instruction to leave something for others, to, for the worshiper in fellowship. So remember, these people have been brought in fellowship with God and one another. But how could they show that this fellowship and commitment to God was genuine? Well, for the person who had uh, an abundance in their field, they could show that their, their trust in God wasn't some hollow claim by the fact that they took the abundance that God had given them and they could show thanks by sharing it with somebody who was in need. Now, the test of gratitude is generosity. The test of gratitude is generosity, and the lack of generosity exposes hypocrisy. What you see in verse 12, well, 11 and 12, it says, "'You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am Yahweh.'" Saying, I want you to do this stuff with your field so that you can show that I'm a gracious God who gives an abundance and, and I meet the needs of others and I bring you in fellowship. And this meeting of needs, what it does is it, it, it develops a greater experience of peace and unity within the fellowship because we're doing the one another's is the idea here. We, we need each other to have needs in the congregation. We need each other to have needs so that we can be a, a living demonstration of God's grace in action. We need each other to have needs so we can meet those needs and enjoy the fellowship that there is in that and the peace and the unity. The idea isn't that you just seek to have a good neighbor, but you're seeking to be a good neighbor. Picking up in verse 15, we read about how to murder your neighbor in verse 15 says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your brother, and you shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor and so not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, and you shall not keep your anger against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now again, this is where Jesus got all that really good sermon material for the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll remember when he was saying to those people, he'd say, you you have heard it said. He says, but I say to you. And then when it came to this idea of murder and hatred in your heart and Jesus tying that together, you find out that he wasn't uh, building on Leviticus. He was just preaching exactly the words that were there. 
he was preaching the author's intent, which was his intent. You know, this, these laws were always pointed at hatred in the heart, which can give way to the fruit of murder coming out of it, because you can lie about your neighbor in a court setting, and it can cost them their lives. He had always been interested at their heart, and he was giving them a right interpretation where people then, during the time of the Sermon on the Mount, had a, a misinterpretation of what was written in Leviticus. And you read the summation of the law there, as you know, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Perhaps you don't think of things like gossip and slander and as being so insidious as to give way to the murdering of somebody. Uh, we've spent so much of our lives putting lipstick on the slander swine, but we have to see that this is a, a more evil and destructive sin than we think. It's not one that is to be respected or accepted as normative, but to seen as the, be seen as the corrupting thing that it is, that it's, it's a heart issue to where you're to be for your neighbor rather than against your neighbor. You're to do everything that you can to protect the reputation of your neighbor and not to unnecessarily defame them and stain their reputation. You also read in here that there's this commitment to helping your neighbor to not live in sin, which is the side where we get this idea of church discipline that Jesus taught about in Matthew 18, where he says, you may surely reprove your neighbor. So you say, may you see sin in your neighbor's life. You're not going around broadcasting it and staining their reputation, but you're seeing they need to be confronted in this and they need to be helped in this. I need to come alongside them and help them. And another part of that is, you know, do this so, so you, you don't bear sin because of him. Because now you know that he's in sin. You have a moral obligation to cover a multitude of sins by helping a sinner turn from their way, as James talks about it. So that the way that that sin is covered is by your leave it, you're leading that person to the blood covering of Christ. You're leading them to the forgiveness that they need, but you have to lovingly come alongside them to point out that sin and have a willingness to help them to turn to walking in holiness, which is how the, the, the law is fulfilled. The fulfillment of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you'll remember Jesus was questioned on the greatest and foremost commandment, and He said, you know, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and that the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. Now, when we read these commands, it's important to note that these commands aren't the way to God. Like, if we love our neighbor, we'll move ourselves toward God, but rather the, the walk with God. Uh, because we know Him, we walk with Him. We, we don't do it to earn a relationship with Him by seeking to love Him and others, but it's how we enjoy the relationship. We're not trying to earn a relationship, but to enjoy the relationship that we have which shows His heart for His creation. It's an expression of His love. And Romans 13, 8, if you want to put that in your notes, it says there, oh, "'Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law.'" And here we see that these concepts of holiness and love are inseparable. Uh, love is to be a holy love, and the way that we live holy lives is by following God's definition of what it is to love your neighbor. Now, as you read through this text, there's just tons and tons of sins and things that are mentioned. And, you know, for a people that their lives were just lived and steeped in this stuff, there could... Uh, be hearts that were given to despair and think, it's all over. 
Like, God's going to reveal all of this stuff and then just kill the rest of us. But in the middle of this, I want you to see verse 22. This is chapter 19, verse 22. It uh, mentions, you know, somebody who has uh, committed adultery. And it says for this person, the priest shall also make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before Yahweh for his sin which he has committed, and the sin which he has committed will be forgiven him. And sometimes it's, you know, the repetition of words that puts an emphasis on something in Scripture, and sometimes it's when the word's only used once. And you see all of these sins all around it, and then bright and shining right in the middle of all of the sin is the word forgiven. It's a reminder that God forgives these kinds of sins. None of these are unpardonable sins. He forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression, even all of these ones that are being talked about right now. There is atonement for these sins. There, there is forgiveness for these kinds of sin. There's good news for the guilty in the guilt offering. In verse 26, you read about some of the practices, religious practices that went on in the world during that time of interpreting omens and soothsaying and rounding off the side growth of their heads and stuff, uh, marks on their bodies, different things that they did for the dead and cutting themselves and the such. And the point that's being made here is that you have to be holy in your worship. You can't mix some of the world's ways of worship with uh, Yahweh's ways. Uh, we talk about this sometimes as syncretism. You know, you, these things don't sync together. They're not to, to mix. And as you guys think about this, you know, what, what, are, what are some things that you think that people today tend to try to mix with Christian worship? Ways of the world that Christians try to mix into Christian worship. Entertainment, yeah, for sure. We're, I think it's a way to attract people and to, to keep them. Yeah, just a appealing to, to people's emotions and focusing on creating a, a feeling. Yeah, so appealing to material desires or, you know, some have labeled it as uh, felt needs. You know, whatever they feel like they need, uh, you adapt yourself to them versus... You know, what we're reading here is what you need is holiness <laughs> or you die. That's the thing that you need. Yeah, other things that we see, you know, that ties into the, you know, seeker-sensitive concept, which also came with uh, taking on the world's business models and how we would structure, you know, church leadership. Yeah, minimal requirements, uh, easy believism where it's, a, well, you see, I know that Jesus said you must be perfect, but he knows that nobody's perfect. So surely he didn't really mean that. Say, like, no, he did, he did mean that, and he's also to achieve that. But the way that he achieves that is he graciously does that for you. He's the perfect one in your place. The other thing is taking in a worldly counsel, you know, that the world says, well, this is how you should think about yourself and your problems and that you're just a bunch of chemicals and it's not a sin issue, it's just, you just need some medicine or something and that, that'll fix it. Or, you know, we see this in the, the, the wrong use of science or psychology where it's merely the world's wisdom in their eyes and it tempts the church to move away from the fullest message of the cross which ultimately, it's the cross that defines who we are, that we're sinners in need of a Savior, and it's the cross that's the solution to our problems ultimately. 
that that's where our sin problem is dealt with, that the guilt is canceled and the power of it is broken so that we're free to live holy lives to God. There isn't a college degree that somebody can earn or an internet search that they can do that will add some needed aspect of wisdom to God's Word. Everything that we we need for knowing God and living for Him is in His Word. Uh, He never needs to be informed by us or helped by us in counseling others or caring for them. But we need Him to inform us and to be our guiding help. Verse 30, I want to point out something here because I got a, I got a bucket to finish this up. But one of the things you're going to see repeated here, and we'll have some more time on next week, Lord willing, is these words in verse 30. You shall keep my Sabbaths and fear my sanctuary. I am Yahweh. There's a focus on God's Sabbath rest and our need to enter into it. And there's the, the tabernacle sanctuary, which is a picture of God's dwelling place, Eden, and man being outside of it and needing to be brought in it, saying, you need God's rest. This is why the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant to instruct them, you know, God has rest, you need it, you're outside of it, but you can come into it through Him and Him alone. Some other points that are made was the need to remember their redemption as a way to be sanctified coming into chapter 20 and verse 3 we read that this is about God's name ultimately to the person that would worship you know Moloch and sacrifice their children he says I also will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among my people because he has given some of those who are his seed to Moloch so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name you see God cares about his sanctuary which is a a picture of holy order in creation, the way that things ought to be, the, a picture of the glory that's going to extend to the ends of the earth and that everything is about His name. In verse... All right, verses 6, 7, and 8 are super important. There's a focus then on setting yourselves apart as holy and be holy because our God is holy again. And there's a strong emphasis in verse 9 on, it says, Anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood guiltiness is upon him. Throughout this chapter, you keep reading death, blood guiltiness, death, blood guiltiness, over and over. It's like, well, why was you know, this idea of cursing or taking your parents lightly, why was it met with the death sentence? It says, because it, it profaned God's name. It would communicate to the world, God. the reason I don't honor my parents is because the God who gave them to me is not worth honoring. And he says, that gets the death penalty. You can't, you can't have that in your midst, which he kind of talked about how laws teach a, a value system. What children would learn is this is a very important value. <laughs> you do not take your parents lightly. You know, it's, it's that big of an issue. Uh, parents today, you do not have permission to stone your children. <laughs> uh, don't, don't do that. <laughs> if you need more explanation on that, uh, we can talk later. God's people, we learn, are always to be separated from the world's ways to live exclusively to Him in everything. These ideas of holiness and love are tied together. And God was never interested in just making a moral nation out of Israel. He wasn't looking for just external conformity, but internal love toward God and neighbor, which only a new heart can do, which is, this is part of what the law is doing at this point, is it's, it's pointing out that you guys aren't this. This is not in you. Uh, you need me to change you so that these things would be a reality in your lives. J.C. Ryle writes in his book, Practical Religion, when a man is a Christian in name only and not in reality, in outward things only and not in his inward feelings, in profession only and not in practice, 
When it's Christianity, in short, is a mere matter of form or fashion or custom without any influence on his heart or life, in such a case as this, the man has what I call a formal religion. He possesses indeed the form or husk or skin of religion, but he does not possess its substance or its power. Verses 25 and 26, this is in chapter 20. I'll read those to you. You remember this was said of the priest, and now it's said to the whole kingdom of priests. You are therefore to separate between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you shall be holy to me. For I, Yahweh, am holy. I have separated you from the peoples to be mine. You hear here this concept that you are therefore to have a biblical worldview. You need to be able to know the difference between the holy and the profane, the clean and the, the unclean. You need to have a biblical worldview and a lifestyle that honors the God who made you and has redeemed you. And then this chapter ends with this verse which might seem a little bit out of place. Right? It says, now a man or woman who is a medium or spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Why do you think that all of a sudden God goes from talking about being separate and holy to them and being able to distinguish those things to then saying if there's a medium or a spiritist, put them to death? Why end the sermon there? Yeah, that's exactly the point because these mediums or spiritists would take the place of God as being the voice of God because eventually what's going to happen is, you know, we had talked about how Leviticus, if we put, you know, the words of Yahweh in red, almost 90% of the book is red, but what do you do when the letters go black? And it's not, you know, this direct speech through Moses. What do you do when all of a sudden he's silent? You know, he's done speaking and he said everything that needs to be said for life and godliness. Well, the people are to live by faith based on what he said. But there's going to be this temptation to, well, we need another word. We need more words than that. We don't like those words. Let's go find a word from some other source that will tell us what we want to hear. Or it's like... No, we don't, we don't want just the things that Moses gave us. We don't, we don't like to read after all. We just want to go somewhere and somebody just say something to us, and we'll just go with that, and that'll be the most current and best thing. Well, what are God's people to do when God is silent? God's people are to walk by faith and in faithfulness to God's revealed Word. They're to be people of the book. They're not to live by feelings, but by what is written. They're not to live by finding another voice, but by searching and studying the sufficient Scripture which God has given them. Because the issue is never that God has left out some instruction that we would need for knowing Him and living for Him, but the issue is our need to learn what He has given us and to be in fellowship with others who can help guide us in faithful worship to our faithful God. You know, we don't want to overlook, you know, the, the y'all aspect of the congregation here. You know, this wasn't just something for Moses or just for Aaron or just for the priest. You know, this is everybody being instructed to be, in a sense, priest to one another of a biblical worldview and holy living. They were to help one another in fellowship to walk in faithful worship to their faithful God. So as we end here, we learn from this text that we're to, to take holiness seriously or die because of our blood guiltiness of not living in it. We have to be careful of not being corrupted by the world's practice and never approve practices which are contrary to, to God's Word. We should always be conforming to what he has revealed rather than what we see going on around us in the world so that our personal lives will be lived 
and holiness to God. Well, we'll end there. We have a minute or a few seconds for any questions, if you have any here. Any questions or comments? All right, I guess that was thorough enough. Well, let's give thanks to the Lord for His Word and for teaching us, and we'll continue in our fellowship by meeting those people in the foyer. <laughs> our gracious Lord, we thank You for the wisdom of Your Word and how You warn us and how You protect us and how You remind us of Your kindness and that You aren't a silent God, but You have a living word that speaks to us today, even though they are words that were revealed so long ago that you still call us to holiness and teach us how your world works and how we can honor you through these things. We pray that you would help us to be careful in how we walk in the world, to not be corrupted by it, but we would also be wise in how we live, that we would be a light to the nations, as was the mission of our Lord and a mission that has been given us to join the suffering servant as suffering servants, to continue to carry out the mission of extending your glory to the ends of the earth, your holy character, your holy will, and how we would love you and love our neighbor. Help us to excel still more in these things, to mature in holiness, to have a biblical worldview and to know how to discern and distinguish between the holy and profane, the clean and the unclean, and to have a commitment to help one another to walk in holiness, even through the uncomfortable moments of confrontation of sin. Help us to receive in humility the times in which we are confronted because we have been corrupted. Help us to be a repenting people that are quick to turn from sin and to turn into your narrow way, which is our joy to walk in it and to know you and to make you known. May we be found in faithfulness to you for the sake of your name being known as the faithful God who guides us in happy holiness. Amen.